The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There may be cyber operations happening, and leaks are curious because leaks don't usually contain the forensic indicators that computer network breaches generate. There's no malware, there's no infrastructure that's easily accessible, unless, you know, somebody makes the mistake of leaking an email, like the email that fished John Podesta into clicking on the malicious link. That email itself got leaked, which allowed us to make high-confidence attribution statements in this case. But if you don't have something like this, then leaks are actually fairly hard to attribute. And that's just something I wanted to illustrate in the article, that there are operations happening, most likely, that um, will remain below the radar. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 23rd, 2022. Cyber war is here, proclaims Thomas Ridd, professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, in a New York Times op-ed last week entitled, Why You Haven't Heard About the Secret Cyber War in Ukraine. While some cyber warfare experts expected massive cyber attacks against Ukraine before Russia invaded in February of this year, which did not happen, Ridd suggests in his op-ed that significant cyber attacks have occurred, but they are more covert and insidious in nature, and we're not focusing on them. I talked with him about the kinds of cyber operations and attacks we have seen in Ukraine, how we might compare and contrast them along with some of his insights about the use of leaks and disinformation in this conflict. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 23rd. Thomas Ridd on Ukraine and cyber war. Thomas, since the time Russia started to amass troops along Ukraine's border, many assume that the confrontation would begin with massive cyber attacks against Ukraine attacks that would affect things like power grids and air traffic control systems. In fact, at at least as of the time we're recording this discussion, we haven't seen the kind of apocalyptic cyber scenario that some people expected. Now, hindsight is 2020, but were we wrong to be expecting more massive digital strikes, especially given the fact that as you note in your New York Times op-ed piece from last week, Russia has perpetrated a number of significant cyber attacks against Ukraine over the past eight years. Yeah, um, so 
First off, thanks for having me on to discuss this situation and this piece that I had in the Times. I think the fact that so many people expected really bad cyber attacks that had uh, potentially not, that were potentially not just limited to Ukraine but had international impact on critical infrastructure is more of a statement about our understanding of computer network attack, its historical place, uh, than it is a statement about what has had not, what has not happened in Ukraine. What I mean by that is that, you know, I think it was now 10 years ago, I wrote an article and then book titled Cyber War Will Not Take Place, in which I argued that if we focus on violent incidents and think this is the the high watermark of computer network attacks, then I think we're just missing the point. But instead, what we're looking at are attacks or breaches oftentimes that are designed to be continuations of age-old intelligence practices. So not military operations. That is the rare exception, but intelligence operations, espionage, collection of intelligence, covert action, meaning achieving an effect on target and really just disinformation and influence operations. And that, I think, is what we actually have seen in this war so far. So to that point, and in continuing our discussion, I certainly don't want to suggest that there aren't significant cyber operations and attacks going on. They're not absent, but but as you, you suggest in your piece, we are perhaps failing to notice them. We're focusing on the wrong things, um, failing to understand the dynamics of some of the significant cyber operations that are actually taking place in an ongoing armed conflict. So if you could talk about then what is going on, what we may be missing and, and why we're missing it. Yes. So first off, I think it's really important, as you just hinted at, to appreciate that we are looking at a war at an ongoing, fairly brutal, multi-front armed conflict. And that means that cyber attacks are by definition going to be of secondary importance. And what I mean by that is not necessarily just from a tactical planning point of view, but really from a public perception, from a from a coverage point of view. So we have seen, for example, one instance of an attack uh, here in the context of the Ukraine war that really on its own without a war happening at the same time would be one of the most significant and most extraordinary cyber attacks of the past decade. And that is the Viasat attack against the KASAT satellite downlink that provides internet connectivity to a large number of customers, many of them industrial and government customers in Europe. Um, including, obviously, in Ukraine. So that attack was quite remarkable because it was it required a lot of planning. It required a lot of preparation. The attacker had to develop firmware that was pushed onto modems of these satellite devices in order to break them, to make them uh, stop them functioning um, normally. And uh, we know that the Ukrainian armed forces, the Ukrainian national police, and the military and uh, the um, intelligence community are customers of the service. And a senior Ukrainian cybersecurity official has admitted that it caused significant communication problems in the early stages of the war. So this is actually really significant as an attack, exactly the kind of thing we would expect to happen at the beginning of a war. And the fact that we're not recognizing it as such and the fact that we are not essentially 
happy, <laughs> satisfied with this level of cyber attack shows me that I think a lot of people just had completely misguided assumptions going in. So I want to then draw out a bit of the point that you just made, looking at this attack on Viasat and comparing or contrasting it to the kinds of things that we were seeing early on, where Ukrainian banks suffered denial of service attacks, where the anonymous collective declared cyber war against the Russian government and obtained a trove of data from a Russian state-owned oil firm. Are those kinds of attacks significant? And if not, why not? And, and how would you compare or contrast them with the Viasat attack? Yeah, the, the great question. I mean, some of these attacks that you mentioned, denial of the denial of service attacks in, in specifically, but also some of the activism uh, and the Ukrainian government is even endorsed some of this decentralized, crowdsourced, you know, computer network operation activism with its quote-unquote IT army idea. A lot of that is more of a public relations really stunt than of real operational or tactical significance. And that, I think, is the biggest difference to the Viasat uh, situation. We, in fact, we don't know precisely what the Viasat impact was on the ground in, in Ukraine. You know, one theory is, but there is not, so far nothing to substantiate that theory, is that some of the unmanned platforms in in use by the Ukrainian armed forces could have relied on uh, on this um, uplink uh, that was interrupted. So that you know might have been a significant impact, but we don't know. And this is completely to be expected because, of course, the Ukrainian armed forces have no interest in revealing successful cyber attacks at this stage of the war. In fact, we may never find out what happened precisely. I'm, I'm sure at some point, because of, you know, this war will be studied for decades, at some po point we will find out more, I think. But when we look at cyber attacks in the context of this war, I think we have to just look at them from a level of, in terms of how sophisticated they were, how much work and preparation went into planning and executing them, and then especially how targeted were they? Did they target capabilities that were really significant? Or, you know, a website defacement on a government website is not really that significant, given that the Ukrainian government is using mostly Western social media platforms to get their message out. I believe you also make the point in your op-ed that the Viasat attack is much more covert and insidious. Can you talk about that a little bit more and the implications it would have. Yes. So, in fact, many of the high-profile, most high-profile computer network attacks, and when I say computer network attacks, I mean attacks that are designed to affect the target, not just take out information and steal information like is done in intelligence collection. But many of these attacks are designed to be stealthy, at least for a time. Most famous case, obviously, is Stuxnet, attack against the Iranian centrifuges in Natanz. And Viasat, how does that relate to the Viasat situation? Well, we know about Viasat only because of the collateral effects. The investigation into what happened started because of collateral effects in, in, in a German wind park and elsewhere in Europe. In total, 
as many as 100,000 modems may have been knocked off. So a lot of people were looking for a reason there. And that raises the question, why did the attacker not ring fence the target? Why did they not target in a more specific fashion? Because if they did, if they had, they only targeted the Ukrainian armed forces communication infrastructure. Most likely, we would still not know about the case because the invest investigation would not have kicked off in the same way. Let me give you another example. Uh, in the article, I also mentioned a rather remarkable leak of names of Russian military personnel, tens of thousands, possibly more than 100,000 individual names, complete with passport number, phone number, address, military unit affiliation, were leaked in Pravda in Ukraine on the 1st of March in the newspaper. And the leak was essentially a, a number of uh, Excel sheets and, and CSV files that were just given to journalists to circulate and, and they're floating around, although some of them are not publicly available easily yet. So where did this come from? Could this be the result of a computer network operation of a cyber attack, the le this leak? And the answer is, you know, we don't know, but quite uh, possible that it is actually the, uh, the result of a, of a cyber attack. And that's the whole point, that cyber attacks are, in many of them at least, not all of them, designed to be covert. So, Thomas, I, I sort of have to reflect back to, um, and you mentioned this before, the fact that about a decade ago, you wrote both an article and then a book explaining that cyber war will not take place. Yet in this op-ed, you tell us that that cyber war is here. It's, it's perhaps not here in the way we are expecting it, but you know, should we be prepared going forward that these significant cyber attacks are often going to be covert and in fact, perhaps deniable by design? Yeah, so thanks for asking that question. Obviously, I, I did that on purpose. Uh, first writing that, referring to my book, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, which uh, to my own surprise, really has become one of the, a classic in this field, one of the most cited and read books in in cybersecurity. And of course, I was a little, you know, I was so young and naive when I wrote the book. I thought I could simply write a book and remove this counterproductive and really not very useful term cyber war from the debate and, and instead focus on what's really happening. And of course, that didn't happen. That didn't work. I mean, people just like to refer to cyber war whenever something happens. And whenever something happens, it's always the first cyber war because what happened previously is never good enough. So it's this sort of weird mindset that cyber war, originally a term, by the way, that derives from, from cybernetics, which was all about the future and, and always a, a space where we projected our hopes and fears into. And that is happening with cyber, uh, cyber space, cyber utopianism, and cyber dystopianism has happened for many decades. And I uh, see absolutely no reason why this should stop. I think if we had an, another interview, you know, 20 years down the line in, in 2042, and we had a major incident, then we would still have that question. Was it, you know, was it cyber war or not? It's just part, it's a fixture of this debate. And so that's why in my New York Times piece, I'm sort of playing with that, with that idea, you know, vaguely referring to sci-fi, to a sci-fi movie where the protagonists are stuck in a time loop and have to relive the same scenes again and again which really reminds me of this debate. So if we are to not relive this 
this debate over and over again and, and really to assess how cyber operations are affecting the conflict in Ukraine, you one of the points you raise is that, well, and I guess this should be obvious, but, but perhaps it hasn't been, in wartime, cyber operations just aren't as useful as bombs, When certainly when it comes to inflicting the physical and, and psychological damage that occurs. So can you talk more about that? Let me take that question about, you know, comparing cyber operations to kinetic effects in wartime and pivot to, I think, a question that is that is of huge significance that we cannot get into our focus if we talk about cyber war and make weapon comparisons. You know, some people love to talk about cyber weapons as well, an equally counterproductive term. And let's talk instead for a moment about counterintelligence capabilities, or if you like, attributive capabilities. And when, you, when we do that, what we see is that many of the high-profile computer network attacks in Ukraine over the years, for example, blackouts, for example, ransomware attacks, were investigated and attributed by third parties, sometimes even with help of other governments. And the same thing is happening here as well. It's now, it's on the public record that Mandiant is doing the incident response uh, in the Viasat situation, something that Reuters reported out. And I understand that American incident response and cybersecurity companies are also working with the Ukrainian government, investigating other cases that have come up, other computer network attacks that have not always been fully publicly disclosed yet. So this is a highly remarkable dynamic because really what it boils down to is that we have a large number of players when it comes to computer network espionage, computer network attack, countries that can do harm. And Russia obviously is quite close to the top of that list. But we have a much smaller number of countries that have the counterintelligence capabilities that are needed in order to investigate and reveal these operations. And what's even more interesting than this is that the counterintelligence capabilities today in this space are to a very significant extent in the private sector, uh, but not everywhere, obviously, but in the private sector in the US, uh, to a lesser extent in the UK, a little bit in Israel and some other European countries. But the US is really the biggest player and the country that has the most experience when it comes to publicly disclosing and attributing adversarial intelligence operations. And that, I think, is a fascinating trend that we see play out now for the first time in the context of an ongoing war. I presume some of what you're, you're talking about was what we saw with or related to what we saw with respect to the U.S. using and declassifying in intelligence to essentially tell us what Putin and Russia was planning before, in fact, they carried it out. So uh, that is, in a way, part of the bigger picture. And we've just seen the White House announce that uh, they've seen, they have indications that Russian actors are preparing computer network attacks against targets in the United States, potentially as well. And that just, I think that just happened um, in the past two days. And we're now in this in this waiting pattern, you know, what will happen next? 
which is really quite fascinating to think about because, as you say, the U.S. intelligence predictions and assessments on other aspects of the Ukraine war so far have turned out to be accurate and rather prescient. So maybe we're looking at a cyber escalation coming coming soon. But what I had in mind in my response there is something slightly different, and that is that you know why can we have such a detailed and fine-grained conversation about most major computer network operations? It's because there's an entire investigative community, if you like, an entire counterintelligence community in the private sector, sometimes in the nonprofit sector, that will investigate capabilities when they get disclosed, like malware, payloads, that will investigate infrastructure when we find it of computer network attacks. And of course, that sometimes will also focus on victims. And, and so we learn more about how victims discovered attacks. And of course, ultimately, in some cases, we have very specific information about attackers as well, about the perpetrators, actors involved. And in some cases, you can complete that whole picture, the whole diamond model, as it's known, that I just referred to implicitly, by working with private sector sources. So the amount of intelligence that we have on adversarial covert action intelligence operations in general is really unprecedented. I think that is the real revolution, if you like. It's not that cyber attacks are happening. It's how they are how they are investigated, how they're disclosed, and how they're oftentimes stopped while they're still ongoing and sometimes even stopped before they're happening. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed 
from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So with that kind of private sector capability, if you will, that is... Um, arguably, you know, part and parcel of good defense and response. How do you think the U.S. government should interact with the private sector? How should it best partner to really leverage those capabilities? Yeah, we see a lot of cooperation between the government and the private sector. I think there's a lot more going on than ultimately becomes public in terms of information sharing, you know, the FBI, for example, sharing various flash alerts with industry partners that are never or rarely become public because they're not designed to be revealed publicly. Otherwise, you would alert the adversary as well, which would defeat the purpose. So obviously, information sharing is a major component of what's happening. And there, certainly the US government can improve, further improve what is happening. 
but let me just leap for, forward to a more controversial point, uh, something that the U.S. government could do and make it sort of very personal, if you like. As somebody who teaches cybersecurity and intelligence history at um, a major university here in town at Johns Hopkins, I constantly run into this problem of leaked material. You know, there's a very high volume of leaked material out there, uh, WikiLeaks, uh, various different sources that made it onto WikiLeaks, um, Snowden, Shadow Brokers, just to name a few, but there are more. Files that are technically still classified and therefore um, my students, especially those students who would like to get a, secu a security clearance, are very concerned about. So I always have to play this game with them or this I have to dance this dance with them at the beginning of, of the term that I will tell them that I will use the best material available to, to inform their case studies and our, our teaching, but I will not show them any classified documents because that could potentially put them into into a difficult spot and when they apply for jobs in government. That whole situation is obviously not limited to teaching, but also, I mean, I've had so many conversations with people in government or the intelligence community who simply don't even know what's in the Snowden files because they can't read the original files because they're technically still classified. It's truly a, a bizarre conversation sometimes that is a, a bizarre situation that in my estimation actually does make it more difficult to have a focused, really pr pragmatic conversation about lessons learned, about capabilities, about cases, about how attribution is done in practice even. So I think if the government wanted to fix a problem that's really easy to fix, then really why are we not finally moving beyond this silliness and s simply treat information that is in the public domain that everybody can open with one mouse click and, and treat that as de facto declassified. Um, that, that, I think, would make a huge contribution to this wider debate. So that's a really interesting point. Um, I, I will just say I, I shared some of the same challenges you described when I taught cyber ethics at West Point. I, just, I was just curious, how did you encounter the problem? It was difficult at times uh, to have the kinds of discussions that I wanted to have because the source materials sometimes even, you know, in major newspapers came from classified evidence. And I needed to be very careful because the students that I was teaching had security clearances and were preparing to be officers, you know, in the United States military. Yeah, I, I, I have so many anecdotes in this context. I mean, some of them, I, I remember once... Uh running a course like an internal teaching seminar for a for an entity that is part of the intelligence community here in Washington and i wanted to show to these officers a a set of leaked files from 1960 these were this is a famous case that i'm discussing in, in another book a famous soviet leak that was really one of the most effective ones in the cold war of american classified information but they forged some of the information it was not just a leak it was also forgeries slipped into the leak and I said, why don't we take this historical case study and see whether you can spot the forgery, see whether you can actually find the page that is completely fake. It's a fun exercise, actually. So they debated and got back to me and said, yeah, you know, we understand this is a bit of an awkward situation, but really we can't look at those files because they're still classified. And we just don't know if, if they've been declassified in the meantime. 
these were 70, uh, 70 years old. So just to illustrate your point. Interesting. So I want to turn back to a point that you make in your op-ed, and, and that is that we really haven't seen a deeper integration of cyber attacks within Russia's broader military campaign. Why hasn't Russia done a better job at such integration, do you think? I think the honest answer is that we don't know if we have seen a more integrated. I, the, my phrasing in the article there was very cautious. We simply don't know if we've seen more integrated use of uh, of cyber capabilities in the context of like against specific weapon systems, for example, that the Ukrainians have or are using. But either way, I, th- I would be surprised if we find a lot of that simply because the whole assumptions that apparently went into the Russian planning were uh, rather misguided. They overestimated what they could have, what they could do with uh, inserting special forces, you know, far behind, far into enemy territory, and achieve, you know, goals in terms of capturing airfields or even cities. Uh, you may recall the parachutes like um, over at Kiev. Um, and I think given that the, pl- the Russian planning was so inept in, in many different ways, actually, including secure communications, for example, I would just assume that the same ineptness applies to the cyber component of operational planning. But of course, that could be an assumption that could turn out to be wrong. So I want to now touch on something that we haven't spent a lot of time yet on but but you do you do have a thread in your op-ed and and that is the role of information operations in this conflict and you of course note that a Ukrainian newspaper leaked the names uh, registration numbers and unit affiliations of I guess 120,000 Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine you suggest that these leaks can have powerful psychological effects on the exposed entity where where they feel vulnerable. Again, as you noted, we we don't know the full story behind this leak, how it happened, but how useful are are such kinds of operations? Yeah, so leak operations of this kind have We've seen many, many cases and examples throughout the Cold War and after the Cold War. And we know just from archival material that they create this sense of of vulnerability in the targeted organizations because suddenly, like for example, imagine you're a commanding officer, you know, fairly high up in the Russian hierarchy or the Ministry of Defense, and, and that comes to your attention. And the report that you get is, yeah, the information in these in this leak is actually accurate. It contains a lot of personally identifiable information on active duty soldiers. It's unclear, by the way, if they actually are in Ukraine or not, because the, the leak isn't brand new. It's from a couple of months ago. So that would then confront you with this dilemma. Should I inform my people that their names have been uh, publicly exposed or should I not inform and either way, both are bad options because if you inform them, then you spread this sense of vulnerability throughout the organization. If you don't, they may find out from family members or online or you know, because they become the target of harassment or something or their families. So it's really, it's really a tricky situation, um, a leak like this. But of course, we shouldn't overestimate how significant it is. It will only become clear years after the fact, if at all, 
um, how it played out, where it where it came from. I included it in the story this leak just to make the point that there may be cyber operations happening, and leaks are curious because leaks don't usually contain the forensic indicators that computer network breaches generate. There's no malware, there's no infrastructure that's easily accessible, unless you know somebody makes the mistake of leaking an email like the email that fished John Podesta into clicking on the malicious link. That email itself got leaked, which allowed us to make high confidence attribution statements in this case. But if you don't have something like this, then leaks are actually fairly hard to attribute. And that's just something I wanted to illustrate in the article, that there are operations happening most likely that um, will remain below the radar. So in in some of your work, you've argued that you know people often overplay the impact of Russian influence operations, propaganda in 2016. What do you make of Russia's failure to spread a coherent message in the West around the invasion? And and do you feel like you now have stronger evidence with which to convince people that Russian influence operations aren't maybe quite as so impactful or, or terrifying as others have argued? Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating question. In some ways, the conversation about cyber war and the conversation about disinformation have, have one abstract commonality, similarity. And that is that in both conversations, we have convinced ourselves that adversaries are far more potent and far more powerful than they actually probably are in practice. And the whole the narrative that I think we've seen in Washington and in the United States about election interference in 2016 for the past five years or more. I think a lot of people just have, first off, convinced themselves that disinformation is is, is an extremely powerful thing because they jumped to the conclusion that the interference in 2016 successfully shaped the outcome and got Donald Trump elected, Which I th- and I think there's no there's no good evidence for that claim. And also just because we didn't want to repeat the same mistake of uh, getting caught flat-footed. So there's an entire cottage industry now look at, looking at disinformation operations. That's a good thing. But sometimes in the process of retelling what happened, in the process of disclosing what happened, we ascribe more competence, more coherence, more impact to these operations than they have. And you know, I'll just point out, Putin repeatedly at the beginning of the whole campaign referred to uh, one of the main goals is denazifying of Ukraine. And uh, I mean, we know where that comes from historically, that, that type of uh, twisted thinking. But, but think about that for a moment. Think about the articulating a goal of denazifying a country that is led by a Jewish president that actually has many holocausts, like where, where the holocaust itself to an extent played out. And and where actual Nazis, just, I mean, I'm German myself. Calling the goal of the campaign uh, denazification was an insult to any self-respecting European who either had to deal with the fact that their uh, countrymen and grandparents were Nazis, or had, who had to fight, uh, whose grandparents had to fight uh, Nazis back in the day. So really, what Putin was doing with this weird often repeated statement, repeated into the face of Macron, for example, 
he was stealing the spine and uniting Europe and also uniting Ukraine, by the way, against uh, Russia. If, if, if we want to describe this as, a disinform as, a, as, a, as an influence operation, then it probably couldn't have been done more effectively. But <laughs> of course, he was shooting himself completely in the foot by uniting his, his enemies. I don't see wh why we should give this, uh, this uh, man or indeed some of his intelligence agencies the benefit of the doubt and, and, and talk them up. I think we've done that for such a long time now we should stop. No, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic to observe here. Do you think that Putin sort of realized what he was doing in, in trying to spin out this rather, as you say, you know, ridiculous offensive narrative? You know, some people argue that he was targeting a domestic audience with this narrative and where it might might fall on more fertile ground. But even if he even even if he was, and even if it plays fairly well in Russia, and I and I don't haven't done that research myself, so I, I, I don't know how well it plays in Russia. But even if it does, it certainly had a detrimental effect internationally. And that of course is the nature of of, of Russian active measures disinformation for you know, more than a century. They often target both domestic audiences and international audiences at the same time. Another reason, in other words, to be skeptical that they're, that they're so skilled at, at what they're doing here. I will point out just briefly also another dynamic here that um, plays out on the disinformation side. And that is a lot of activists here in the United States, um, but also globally, on the fringes, both on the far right and on the far left, will sometimes seize on narratives, for example, the biolabs in Ukraine narrative, that will then in turn get amplified um, by Russian government actors. And indeed, this whole narrative that there are bio, American bioweapon labs in Ukraine is a narrative that has been popping up for many, many, if you like, decades, and certainly also years uh, going back in the post-Cold War era. But what's new, and this is again a fascinating dynamic without much historical, in-depth historical precedence, is that you have this, this dynamic interaction between activists on the far right and disinformation actors who uh, seize on, you know, think about it this way. If you have conspiracy theories that you want to amplify as a disinformation actor, you now have a teeming Petri dish with pre-tested already, you know, fairly robust conspiracy theories on the internet that you can simply draw on and then amplify. That was much harder to do pre-internet. And, uh, and this dynamic is only now coming to full bloom. Um, so it's an, interesting, it's an interesting situation to watch. Would it be fair to say that we should expect that kind of dynamic to proliferate, to, to stay? Hard to tell if uh, I st always struggle predicting the future. Because historically, we tend to get it wrong when we want to predict the future <laughs> too precisely. So, but it is remarkable to see how how the disinformation conversation is create has created its own marketplace and its own demand in a number of countries who decided to invest in those capabilities because they were allegedly so powerful. So there's a bit of that self fulfilling prophecy aspect that I think is still playing out. So to finish up. As we continue to watch this war play out in Ukraine, with respect to cyber operations, 
what kinds of things should we be looking for? What kinds of things should we be focused upon? Yeah, so the Biden administration's recent warning that cyber attacks potentially against American targets are in the making, and we should expect them to happen. That was, it's just a fascinating moment. And let's just reflect for a second on this moment. We have an ongoing war in Ukraine, a war that is more so brutal that it appears retro to us. It really reminds us of World War II and looking at the civilian casualties and urban, uh, the bombed out apartment buildings and, and whatnot. So it's really hard to process these, the, all these images and videos. And in that context of a looming escalation in Ukraine, we are suddenly thinking about the cyber component hitting us at home. And, you know, one of the fascinating aspects here is that very few people here I would I would expect, even after Biden's top line warning there on cyber attacks, I think are really afraid for the security of their kids when they bring them to school in the morning or pick them up in the afternoon or for their own, you know, for the security of their own homes, which really drives home to us that if we look at that contrast between these brutal pictures from Kiev and the potentially coming cyber attacks here, they just are very different, even if there's a blackout for a couple of hours, which would be an extraordinary achievement, by the way. Even if, you know, you couldn't fill up your car because gas deliveries, supply chains were interrupted, like we've had with the Colonial Pipeline incident, which was a cyber attack as well, or cyber incident as well. Even in those more extreme situations, I think they're nowhere near in terms of their psychological and logistic impact, nowhere near airstrikes, artillery strikes, or you know, just urban, urban warfare of the kind we see in Ukraine. And I think that's just an interesting moment to reflect on because we've never had that before. And I think we are about to see you know, what the potential and really more importantly, what the limitations are of cyber attacks in the context of an armed conflict in Ukraine and potentially even here. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for sharing your perspective and giving us some critical and interesting insights on cyber operations, cyber attacks, and disinformation operations. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This Friday, March 25th on Lawfare Live, our weekly supporter-only live show will feature a question and answer session with our own Molly Reynolds, congressional expert and woman about town. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.